Today, we are going to continue our study in the book of Acts. Please turn to Acts chapter 5. Last week, we looked at Ananias and Sapphira, who desired to be regarded as very spiritual, earnest disciples, and they were not disciples at all. And God took both their lives. And great fear came upon the whole congregation and on everyone who heard of these things. Today we'll begin in Acts chapter 5, verse 11. But first, we will begin with prayer. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning. Please be with me because you know I am wholly inadequate to teach the Word of God. These things are beyond the abilities of a human, so I pray that you would fill me with your Spirit and give me grace and anointing to speak these words boldly and accurately. I pray that your Spirit would draw near as comforter, helper, and aid in listening to the Word of God and being empowered by it and in changing our minds and our hearts we pray for every brother and sister in India who is joining in, including um, the, uh, the children. We pray for everyone in this building, everyone at home, uh, Mama Sam, uh, Jennifer, um, and everyone who can't be here now due to illness or other reason. Bless us now, Lord, today as we draw near to you. We have gathered in your name to ask that you would give us great faith. And even though we usually don't want it, we dare to pray for it, we ask that you would give us great fear of God, knowing that this, along with earnestly waiting on you together, is a prerequisite to any outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would raise our faith to believe that these things and acts are normative for the church today in every sense, without exception, because the Scripture says so. Please forgive us for our sin of unbelief. Cleanse us from every other hidden and secret and overt sin, especially resistance to doing your will. Please forgive me of these things. As you know, I struggle with all of these things. Oh Lord, pour out your spirit on us and make us a people prepared for you to dwell, even as you do now dwell among us, because the Holy Spirit is with every one of us who believes and trusts and obeys you. Even now, Lord, we are praying for a refreshing and an empowerment of the Holy Spirit, like the disciples saw again and again in the book of Acts, because the world needs it, and we need more of you. Amen. Amen. The big danger we face today is that we may find it easy to believe that the things written down in the Bible really happened but we don't expect them to happen for us. That is, we think thoughts like, Jesus did miracles in the four Gospels, and the apostles, or Jesus through the apostles, did miracles in Acts. But that was then, and today, being a disciple of Christ or being a Christian is just different. Few or no miracles and such. That's our expectation. But this scripture we are about to read was written down as an example and a pattern for us 
on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. In this passage, in Acts 5, starting in verse 12, we see what Christians do, what the normal Christian life is. What does it look like to be a Christian? Where do we go to find out? We go to the book of Acts. In the beginning of Acts, they're waiting on the Lord in prayer, earnestly seeking his face for many days and waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit so that they can be empowered to be his witnesses and fulfill the great commission to disciple all nations. That hasn't changed. Now, in this chapter, as a result of their waiting on the Lord and ultimately because of the promises of God given through the prophets, and because of their fear of God, which has been raised in what we just read with Ananias and Sapphira recently, and because of their faith that God can and will do all the things that the prophets have foretold, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit here by Acts chapter 5 becomes more intense than it was before. And that is what we want for our church, for the church all around the world today. Acts chapter 5, verse 12, we'll start in verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. Solomon's portico is one of the sections of the temple. So they were at the temple. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and Sadducees are members of their, most of the Jewish Sanhedrin or local governing body under the Roman Empire and Roman law, uh, the, the Sanhedrin was given generally broad authority to govern, make, and enforce laws. And there in the temple, they even have their own temple guard, their own temple soldiers. And here, the Sadducees who, you know, there are a few Pharisees in the Sanhedrin. You know what the Pharisees are like. The Sadducees are a little less religious and a little more politically savvy. They're, they don't believe in miracle. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the afterlife or the resurrection from the dead, but they're spiritual people, you know, they're, they're religious, um, and, uh, and they're really politically savvy. They're good at keeping their jobs, they're good at maintaining power, and they're good at, they're very, they're very shrewd in keeping peace with Rome and keeping their position under Rome over the, the, the people, uh, keeping their jobs. And Rome wants to, Rome has conquered them. And Rome's goal is to 
not have a riot, not have a rebellion. They've conquered them once. They don't want to have to conquer them again. So if there's an uprising, Rome is going to almost instantly come in and squash it. And they're going to do that by lining everybody up, counting them off one through ten, and every tenth person they're going to crucify or something like that. And, and these people, including the Sadducees, uh, know all about crucifixion, and there have been many cruci people crucified in, uh, all around Jerusalem so far. Rome is vicious, violent, and unforgiving, and they just want their taxes. The Sadducees want to keep power, and they are ever alert for anything that, that, that sniffs, anything that smells like a rebellion or an uprising or an overthrow or any kind of, uh, any kind of rivalry to their power or to King Caesar. And here are these Christians. And the Christians are saying, there's another king, not Caesar. There's another king above Caesar. Caesar, like Nebuchadnezzar, who we have studied, all must bow the knee to King Christ. And Christ is now the ruler of the whole world. And these are the kings, these are the Caesars, these are the emperors that God has in his sovereignty chosen to raise up for a time and a season until the cup of their iniquity is full, and then he will bring that emperor and ultimately that empire down in judgment for their deeds. And this is what has happened to every country and every empire of countries that has ever arisen in the history of the world. Greece, Persia, Rome, Babylon, the Ottoman Turks, the Holy Roman Empire, uh, the Japanese Empire, uh, the Nazi Empire, uh, the Tsars, uh, the various Russian empires, the Egyptians, every one of the, the Canaanites. Every one of these empires has arisen because God gave them permission to have authority, and in due time, he passed sentence on them and brought them down. And this is about to finish happening to the Jewish people who have, throughout their history, consistently and, I'm going to say, faithfully disobeyed God. And when we read that about the Jews, we're supposed to think, are we any better than they? Oh, how desperately we need the Lord. We need a Savior. We need a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit to empower us to want to do His will. And that is what the people have been earnestly praying for and waiting for here. And there's going to be a division, a separation between the Jews and those who have converted to Christ, both Jew and Gentile, in the book of Acts. And right after the book of Acts, uh, uh, the time of the book of Acts is written just several years later, Christ is going to come in judgment, and he's going to send the Roman armies to destroy the temple, to take away both their place, that is the temple, and their nation, and the nation will be no more. But the people of God, standing as one spiritual heritage, not exactly genetic heritage, but having the lineage that is born of the eternal Christ, from Adam through Seth, Abraham, David, the prophets, the apostles, one tree of life, one Christ, one church, one house built on the bedrock of Christ, our foundation, growing as a holy temple, one family tree running all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, 
continuously with we Gentiles being grafted in where Jews were broken off because of their unbelief, and that can happen to us too, and is happening all over our country as the church, churches are dwindling, closing their doors. That's Christ passing sentence on the church because judgment begins with the house of God. And we're here today to examine ourselves and answer the question that Christ answered, when he comes, will he find faith on the earth? We're here to look at this passage and say, why doesn't our church look like this? Lord, we need our church to look like this, and please take us there. How do we do that? Or do we even need that? Or is what we have now normal and good enough? Okay, so the Sadducees are jealous. The Sadducees don't believe in angels. They don't believe you can rise from the dead. Once you die, you die. They're kind of natural-minded. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. That's probably the temple prison. But during the night, God, in his sense of humor, sends his angel and opens the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak. Like they didn't wait to the time when we would normally prefer to maybe wake up. Like right at daybreak, they're already there at work. And began to teach. Now when the high priest showed up to work, and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. They're bringing them to trial for their well, they're going to figure out what their crimes are. It doesn't really matter. They're just going to punish them and, if possible, put them to death because they've got to squash anything that comes against their authority, anything that makes them look bad. And they're doing this out of jealousy. Lord, please take away jealousy from my heart. Take away jealousy from our hearts. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, Huh? We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain, and the, the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. This is the first of several cool prison breaks that uh, happen in the course of these repeated refreshings and waves of outpourings of the Holy Spirit through the book of Acts. Sometimes the persecution is going to result in the death of some of the apostles and some of the disciples. And sometimes they're going to be sprung from jail supernaturally. And if persecution causes us to rejoice, then our our faith will stand the test of time. Our church will stand the test of time. If we see one of our brothers or sisters martyred and we are faint of heart and we lose hope in Christ and we lose hope that Christ is able to convert, convert the nations to his name, then what we are building will not stand the test of time and the Lord will raise up someone else to take our place. So there are greatly perplexed, wondering what this would come to. 
And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Okay, that's like the ultimate irony of ironies. The leaders of the temple and the temple police grab the apostles and they put all dozen of them in the temple prison and they're in the temple prison. An angel, and they don't believe in angels, comes during the night, opens the prison doors but leaves them locked and, uh, and all the apostles leave. They don't, they don't miss, like they don't wait to sleep in. I'm sure they were tired after their long night of being imprisoned. They're right there. They're in the temple. They're preaching the gospel that Jesus really is the Christ. He is the Lord of the world, and all of us have to repent and turn to him for life. And there in the temple, in the temple prison, there are no apostles, and there in the temple teaching, just like Jesus was often in the temple teaching, there they are. This is like a double irony. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, remember back in chapters 2 and 3, Peter and John got arrested after they uh, looked at this man intently, you know, silver and gold I have none, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And the man sprang to his feet, and immediately his feet and his ankles became strong. This guy had been sitting there. Everybody knew him. He'd been sitting there from the time he was a little boy because his friends carried him there so that he could beg for money from the people coming into the temple. And he leapt into the temple, clinging to Peter and John, dancing. It's like a charismatic church in here. And, and this is temple. And they didn't do that. And people come running to hear the word of the Lord proclaimed, and Peter and John are teaching them, we Jews have crucified the Messiah that the prophets foretold, but God would have mercy on us anyway, and God would grant us the repentance that leads to life. And, and here in Jerusalem were gathered the Gentiles raging against him and plotting in vain like Pilate, and the Jews, our own elders, our own Pharisees, Sadducees, our own Sanhedrin, our own rulers, the Jews, all conspiring together against the Lord, against his anointed one, and, and God's laughing. And Christ is raised from the dead, seats, takes his seat on his throne in glory, and pours out the Holy Spirit on these, the very community of people, at least those who were repenting, who, who, had, who had just killed their own Messiah, their own king. It's the ultimate mercy, and that's the gospel, and that's the spirit the disciples here have, uh, the apostles here have when they're imprisoned. How are they going to respond to last time they were strictly charged not to teach any more in this name? And now they're brought back in for questioning, verse 28, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood, that is the guilt for killing this man, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. In chapters 2 and 3, when they had been jailed and given their uh, their defense, they had said, judge for yourselves whether we should obey you or God. Here they repeat, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. 
God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel, not to come through and wipe them all out, to give repentance to Israel. God is good, and God is the same yesterday and today and forever, and this is the God we're approaching to ask for repentance and for more of him, more of the Holy Spirit to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, what is the present case? Jesus rose up, came out of nowhere, out of podunk, you know, hole-in-the-wall Galilee, out of Nazareth of all places, and, and he says, I am, making himself equal with God, making himself greater than Abraham, their father. He's saying, I'm, I'm someone greater than Solomon is here. Solomon is the greatest king Israel has ever had. Oh, that we were back in the days of Solomon when we could get these Romans off our back and be a free country again and be rich and have all the nations bring their wealth to us like the prophets foretold, people streaming to the house of God, bringing gifts and coming to us to, so we could tell them how to live and what to do and we could give them the law of God, Right? And they envision that that's going to happen with another king like Solomon, another son of David. Obviously, Solomon wasn't it, because even within his own lifetime, his heart was turned away, not after one or two idols, but after hundreds of the idols of his many foreign wives. Another king like Solomon isn't going to cut it. In the present case, that means here this guy came out of nowhere, rose up claiming to be somebody. Some people think he is the Messiah. Some people think he's a great teacher. And people are going after him now, crowds and multitudes, such that we're filled with jealousy. And, and where is he now? Gamaliel's asking. In this present case, he's dead. These guys don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They don't believe Jesus is alive and pouring out the Spirit of God on them. They think, he's dead. You got all his disciples still saying, well, he rose from the dead. And and Gamaliel is counseling him, in this present case, they too will scatter if this is not from God. But he's smart. He's studied the Bible his whole life. He's a teacher of the law held in honor among all, and he knows a good thing when he sees it. And he's, he's probably never going to believe that Jesus is the Christ from Psalm 2, that Jesus is the Christ from Psalm 110, that Jesus is the Christ of the, of the prophets. He's probably never going to buy that, right? But he knows a good thing when he sees it. He's been reading the Bible enough 
that he does realize, well, people are getting healed and people are worshiping God, even though they're totally deluded by this Jesus. And he's like, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Don't associate with them. Don't let the Romans think we have anything to do with them, you know, or they're going to come and, and wipe us out too. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And Gamaliel really is probably not quite on the verge of believing that this is of God, but he can see the signs. He does see the miracles, like Jesus said, and he is wondering if maybe he kind of sort of shouldn't believe even the miracles themselves because they speak for themselves. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. They didn't slap them on the back real hard. They didn't take the squishy part of their fists. Well, mine are squishy. If you do martial arts, they're probably real heavy duty. But they didn't like come in and like pound on their backs real hard and give them a couple of bruises, right? They didn't, this wasn't like a, a mild beating. This was probably the traditional 39 lashes. They probably got flogged like Jesus got flogged. It may have been as bad if you've seen the movie The Passion of the Christ. It may have been that. Um, they didn't come away hurt, bruised, and ashamed. They probably came away wounded. It's possible this was a beating to within an inch of their life. But that's not the emphasis here in that passage. And that is the Lord's sovereignty that it's not, because that's not the focus here. That gets one phrase, they beat them, and charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So let's go back to the beginning and work our way through. Acts chapter 5, verse 12, that paragraph, what exactly happened here? First, earlier in the book of Acts, the disciples were waiting on the Lord for many days. And that, if we're honest with ourselves, is what we're kind of starting to do again more in our church. But I think this passage, this passage today will build our faith and we will start to seek the Lord more earnestly. And he would be pleased with that and would pour out the Holy Spirit on us if we are willing to do what he says. There are miracles there are healings. There are deliverances from evil spirits. The apostles are teaching, and what are they teaching? They're teaching what Jesus, the same things Jesus taught, and Jesus taught from the Old Testament, and he taught from the Old Testament in parables, but he taught the law of God afresh and anew without changing it. He fulfilled the ceremonial laws and the clean and unclean meats and the, you know, not mixing two types of clothing and this and that. He fulfilled all those things, and there's now no distinction between Jew and Gentile, right? Other than that, 
All of the law of God is the things that Jesus is teaching the people to do with a pure heart, with an earnest heart. They're teaching this, and they're teaching that Jesus is the ki their king, the, the Messiah who will reign eternally. They're teaching obedience to the commands of God. What is the motive by which we must obey the commands of God? It's love, it's joy, it's gratitude, like when Jacob came out from Laban and, um, and he bowed down and he prayed and he said, Lord, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and kindness that you have shown to your servants. For, for I came into, you know, I came out here with nothing but my staff and now I have become two camps. That's our heart. That's the heart of obedience that the Lord is looking for. It's gratitude, it's joy, it's faith and fear along with love. When all these motives go together because God is one, and uh, then, then, then we're obeying God with right motives. But what happens normally is we choose the part of God that we like most, like his love or his no questions asked forgiveness, and we pay homage to that part of him. We lessen God by doing so. We, we take his name in vain by doing so. Or we can take him as he is. It's taking him as he is that is the mark of the Christian. And in this passage, there are so many people doing that at once that it is only natural that their prayers should be heard from on high. God is drawing them, granting them repentance from sin. And the fellowship the level of faith and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is out of this world. Okay, so we know what healings are, we know what miracles are. What is, what is deliverance? It says those afflicted with unclean spirits were all healed. So what are unclean spirits? They're demons, which as you know from Christian culture, demons used to exist, but they don't anymore. Except if you're a really bad person, you could be possessed by an evil spirit in some kind of witchy, like horror movie sort of way, but probably in other countries, or like maybe if you're really, really on drugs, we don't, that doesn't happen in churches. Demons don't live in churches because the Spirit of God is here. What fellowship hath light with darkness? Brothers and sisters, this passage should be convicting of our sin and primarily our sin of unbelief. Because we as Christians may welcome oppressing demons into the house of God. And when I say the house of God, I don't mean the walls. I mean us, we're the house of God. It's a chastisement, not a, not a logical rule, what fellowship hath light with darkness. Therefore, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, there can't be an oppressing, pestering, even tormenting demon latched onto you or or kind of making its home with you, it's a chastisement. What fellowship hath light with darkness? That's a call to repent, and it's a call to repent for Christians. So, who here has the unclean spirits? Which again, we don't believe in because demons don't exist in the church today. I'm kidding. Where did the demons go when they were cast out? There were a lot of demons that Jesus and the disciples and the apostles dealt with. Where did they all go? 
Well, the church today is a lot like the Israel in the time of Christ. It's very, very similar. And of that land, the prophets foretold to a people dwelling in darkness has arisen a great light. That's Christ bringing the light of the gospel. The, our country, our land, even our church is like that Israel that the prophet called a land dwelling in deep darkness, right? There was a lot of unbelief and a lot of spiritual confusion and cluelessness about what God intended to do and to, to not be like harsh on other people, you know, uh, like I'm somehow better than them. Uh, there was a lot of need and there were a lot of sheep without a shepherd. And, and we're like that, but for Christ. So there are those who are afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all healed. So I wanna ask you, who were afflicted with unclean spirits? Were the apostles, or the people who were already kind of attending church there, the disciples who were already like zealous? What, I think maybe we could say they were the, the crowds, the multitudes of both men and women who are just coming to faith. Maybe they had demons, and then they came, and they were converted to Christ, and then the demons were cast out as they came. If you think that, that's fine. Think that through. People have demons, we're saying Christians don't have demons. Christians aren't afflicted or oppressed or tormented by demons, right? Because of that old teaching that is rampant in the church that a Christian can't be possessed by a demon. A Christian who is possessed by Christ, who belongs to Christ, can't be possessed by a demon. Well, let's change that word and let's say oppressed. Can a Christian be oppressed by a demon, right? And is that in fact what spiritual warfare is at its core? My flesh, which is no worse and no better than the average demon, says the scripture, fellowshipping with demons because I'm fleshly, right? That's spiritual warfare, right? I don't need a demon to sin, and a demon can tempt me to sin, right? So here are these people. When did they get delivered from their unclean spirits? Was it before they came to faith in Christ, or was it after they came to faith in Christ? Well, it was their faith that brought them. God drew them before they had faith. God gave them faith, and they came. Multitudes of both men and women. Once they came in faith, you see, they already had faith. I'm going to say they were already saved. Then they were delivered from unclean spirits. We here today might need some deliverance. Amen. I'm saying this is normal. This is a pattern and example for us. And maybe, maybe we need prayer to be freed from oppressing spirits that can get attached to us because they're abusers by no fault of my own or because of my own sin. I have made my, my heart or my mind a place where they have been welcomed. I've given them permission. I've, I've put out an open invitation. You know, I'm going to sin. <laughs> Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Have you ever done that? I have. And, and so they come. And then when you pray, you feel the release. When, when I repent of sin that I've been a little persistent in for a little while, I feel something being lifted off me. Do you? This is real. That's a demon, right? 
but you don't need a demon to make you sin. The flesh is bad enough. So that's what's going on here. So, sometimes demons are allowed to harass or even torment people until we humble ourselves and cry out to God. But we'll leave that. Now, in this paragraph, there are many signs and wonders regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Well, what's wrong with us? What's the deal with us? What's, what's, what's going on here? What do we lack that we don't see more miracles, healings from diseases, disabilities, injuries, and have more demons cast out of us? Are we doing something wrong? Here in this passage in Acts 5, we see more than ever people turning to the Lord with great faith. And this is what we lack. They're turning to the Lord with great faith and with great fear. And that is also what we lack. We lack the fear of God. Examining ourselves, examining myself, do I have faith that God can and will do wonderful things in me and in us as a family if we believe him and do all that he tells us to do? If we go home and study what the early Christians did, um, please read along in the book of Acts. Be opening your Bible to the book of Acts week in and week out as we go through this study. We'll probably go through the whole book. If we do, that'll be many weeks. Be reading in the book of Acts. Read it through in a sitting. Read it half of it, and then read the other half the next day. Set aside a weekend and make your weekend plan to read the book of Acts um, and pray over it and ask, God, did you expect this to continue in some kind of real sense through the centuries? Or have you changed the way you do things? Now, there are seasons. There are seasons of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then people get, the church gets dry, right? And then we recognize our need. It's like in the book of Judges, that pattern in the book of Judges. And then we recognize our dryness and we're like, I'm thirsty. I need a drink. And no other earthly drink, uh, whether social time or, or friends or, you know, hobbies or food and drink or whatever, nothing else quenches that thirst. And we Christians go through a season where we long for the Lord again. The Lord is worthy of that longing, and therefore He let us, He ordained that we might, that we must long for Him. And when we do, he is pleased to answer our prayers as we wait for him, and another wave of the Holy Spirit is sent. So if you're in a dry season, that, that we shouldn't be thinking, oh, we're horrible. We should be thinking, we need to gather together and pray and earnestly seek the Lord for more of him. Examining ourselves, do I have faith that God can and will do wonderful things in me and in us as a family if we believe him and do all that he tells us to do. Here the apostles were willing to continue to go house to house and teach in the temple day after day, no matter the cost. If we go home and study what the early Christians did, and if we do the same things, we will see a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It will look like it did throughout the book of Acts. And there were waves in the book of Acts. Right? 
The book of Acts doesn't show us one outpouring or baptism of the Holy Spirit. It has many. This is just one of them. In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, there's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And you thought, when, last time you read Acts, that that was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But at the end of Acts 4, there's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Here, in the middle of Acts 5, there's an outpouring of the, more, the Holy Spirit. And then later, to the new believers in Samaria, there's an awesome outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then to the centurion Cornelius and all those in the household with him, all his relatives, friends, family, anybody he could get to come, uh, to what became quite a party, um, it was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Then in Ephesus, after Paul went there and uh, worked, to, worked with his team to plant the church there, there's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit such that people are bringing their, their repenting of practicing magic and they bring all of their magic cards, scrolls, articles, idols, they're bringing it all and they pile it up and they torch it, they light it on fire and they count up the value of it and it's like thousands and thousands of pieces of silver, right? It's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts was written down as a pattern and example for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. The book of Acts doesn't have one outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it has many. And we need those to continue all through history. And the church in most of the world has been mostly dry for most of the time since a few more waves of the Holy Spirit after the apostles. And here's what we do. We say, I don't see many miracles around me, so miracles don't happen anymore. We're not associated with one of the charismatic moves of God, one of the revivals happening in our day in various places in the world, like China and Brazil and South Africa and elsewhere, and even here, in small part. We haven't been associated with that. We don't run with that crowd, and so we think that's not even real. And that's really our own ignorance. It doesn't mean it's not there. It's we don't go to that church because why? Next, examining ourselves, do we have great fear of God? There are three prerequisites in the book of Acts to this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's waiting on the Lord earnestly for many days. It's great faith and it's great fear of God. Do we have great fear of God? I didn't mean love of God. Do we have great love of God? That's how we normally think of what we're supposed to have towards God. But in the Bible, fear of God is biblical. It's inseparable from the love of God. And there's no love of God in the Bible without fear of God. Fear of God we talked about the other week was a prerequisite to the love of God. We made that argument. We looked at the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Seek the fear of God. So, if Jesus stood among us in our church this morning and asked us, <clears throat> if he stood right there, he is standing among us, but if he appeared visibly and he asked us, he looked around at each one of us right now and asked us, why do you think I do few miracles in this church. What would you say? I'd start to feel a little bad. And I wouldn't be able to think of any other answer other than Jesus 
you couldn't do many miracles in your hometown because of their unbelief. Jesus will not do many miracles where there is unbelief. In our country, the church is filled with unbelief. What about this church? What about me? People who don't believe in miracles look around, don't see many miracles, and they say that miracles have more or less ceased. But that isn't a biblical idea if you study it out in any part of the scriptures from start to finish. In Acts 3 and 4, when Peter and John healed the disabled man in the temple, what did Peter and John have that was so special? They were apostles. We're not apostles. Baloney. They had the Holy Spirit. They were men like us. Elijah was a charismatic Christian. He went to a Pentecostal church, right? Elijah and Elisha were super charismatic, <laughs> right? All kinds of miracles and healings and raising from the dead. And What did Elisha have? The Apostle James says in the New Testament, Elisha was a, Elijah, Elijah was a man like us, and he prayed. So the call then to us is to have greater faith than we have had and to pray for, quoting Jesus, greater things than these. He said, you will do them. He was talking to the apostles and only the apostles. Hogwash, baloney. That's not true. He was talking to all disciples through all time. We must repent of our unbelief or we won't see them and God will raise up other Christians who will. He'll raise up other Christians who are willing to do all that he commands. So do the apostles have a better Holy Spirit than we have? That'd be a tough argument to make theologically, theologians. The main reason we don't see miracles much is because of our unbelief. This isn't of God. This is weird. This is crazy. Some here may be thinking that during the sermon because I'm saying these things very boldly. And that's what the Sadducees in this passage did, didn't they? In general, that's why moves of God fizzle out and are eventually quenched. And then here we find ourselves and we think that we're different. If you really get saved and you really get filled with the Holy Spirit and you pray for more of the Holy Spirit, a lot of the opposition you are going to encounter is from Christians and churchgoers who are not Christians. But we want a move of God. What do we do when we're floating on a ship and the wind's not blowing? You ever study historical, nautical, uh, history, navigation, sailing ships, they get close to the equator, and I, don't know, I, like, I like this kind of stuff, so I'm interested in everything. All right, sailing ships, they're going from the old world to the new world. They're going from Europe to the Americas, to the West Indies, right? They're sailing, they're sailing, they're sailing, and all of a sudden they hit what latitudes? Abigail. Sydney? The doldrums, they hit the horse latitudes, right? And there's no wind that blows in that latitude, hardly at all. You know, the wind patterns are just such that they're stronger in some parts, some latitudes than others, right? And, and you get there and nuts. And you've got two weeks before there's a breath of wind. And so they're like, well, we didn't bring two extra weeks worth of food to cross the Atlantic. So 
they've brought livestock, they have some pigs or some horses or whatever, because that's going to be pretty helpful to, you know, build a civilization in the new world, build a successful colony, and they have to, unfortunately, they have to eat their horses, otherwise they'll run out of food, you know, it's, so they had to do it. And then eventually they got some wind again, and they, and, uh, and they caught those uh, winds, and they made it on the rest of their journey, right? So, so what do we do when we're floating on a ship, this is a ship church, this is an ark, and the wind's not blowing. What do we do when we need a fresh breath of the Holy Spirit to power us forward? We pray for more. Sometimes we don't believe that God will give us more of himself when we don't ask him. It's the Charlie Brown syndrome. It won't happen to me. Nothing good will happen to me. That's Charlie Brown. That's his psychological complex. If you study the psychology of Peanuts comics, which you probably should. When you ask our Father for more of the Holy Spirit, what do you expect to happen? Is God a good Father who will truly give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Nah, He'll give me a snake. He'll give me a scorpion. That's biblical imagery for a demon. You know, I'll get possessed by an evil spirit. I'll get into one of these assemblies of God or Pentecostal churches or whatever, and they've got all this. It's probably hypnosis. They're probably actually getting possessed by demons and doing all this weird stuff. Does some weird stuff happen? Yeah, some weird stuff happens. But let's just eat, throw out the bones and eat the fish, right? Um, what do you expect to happen when you pray for more of the Holy Spirit? Is God a good Father who will give, who will indeed give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? I say that He is. Furthermore, Jesus said, if any man is willing, if anyone is willing to do my will, he will know if this teaching is from God or from men. I'm saying, if any of us, myself included, are willing to do God's will, we're going to find out if the book of Acts really is a pattern and example for the church through the ages, or if this is just a little bit too inflated a sermon and we're just, we're just going to get disappointed. Furthermore, God's Spirit doesn't dwell well with impure hearts. We need pure hearts. We need to confess our sins. There is sin in our camp, sin that we know about and sin that we don't know about. Today, we are focusing especially on the sin of unbelief, which sneaks into congregations like ours insidiously. A test for unbelief, for whether there is unbelief there, is obedience. Are we willing to obey God in every area, no matter the cost? Luke 6, 46 through 49. Why do you call me? Who's you? It's the disciples. It's the people who are following him. It's us. Why do you call me, Lord, Lord? and not do what I say. He's talking to his own followers. If we do listen to the Lord, 
Because we are, we're here in church, and yet we don't act on it. Will something better happen to us? Are we building? We heard it, but we didn't do what he says. So we're building our house on the sand. And the storm's going to come. The foundation is made of millions of grains of sand. And they're slippery, and you'll sink. And your house will come apart. And what you have built will not stand the test of time. Churches can close their doors. That's why. The contrast to that is in Acts, in this very passage, when Peter and the apostles, when tested, say, we must obey God rather than men, and they do it, and they share the gospel. This passage shows us Christians as examples who do the right thing, do the will of God, proclaim the gospel, obey God rather than men. When you hear the word of God, the word of the Lord, and you act on it, there will be opposition. Let's talk about persecution. When we are persecuted, we don't rejoice, if we've even ever been persecuted. We harbor bad thoughts. We have to, we have thoughts of maybe I should get my baseball bat or whatever I've got and go kill that person. Did the apostles think to themselves when they were beaten? All right, guys, they had a huddle, they had a bruised and probably bloody huddle, and they said, all right, we got to stop this Sanhedrin. We're going to come during the night. Simon, you go get the rest of the zealots, take them out. We can't let them keep doing this to the Christians. I don't think that even entered their mind, but that would enter our minds, church. We'd have to fight that thought. That would come to our minds. Instead of trying to kill their enemies, they're trying to turn their enemies into their friends by preaching their gospel, their gospel. Jesus was opposed to Satan, but he didn't try to kill his human enemies. He preached the gospel to them because it was his time. He laid down his own life. They didn't take it from them. Now, here, it's the same with the apostles. And if you have enough faith, you will find it's the same with us. They're not trying to kill their enemies. They're trying to convert the hearts of some, and they're doing it by, preach, by sharing the gospel faithfully day by day in the churches and from house to house. Verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. When the civil authorities make laws that violate the law of God, we must obey God rather than any human authority. When you're local, national, federal, city government, it doesn't matter. When your governors, when your government says you can't go to church anymore, they've got a reason. It's COVID. I'm in the medical, in the nursing field. I, I respect avoiding the transmission of disease. That's a good rationale for changing my behavior. But what do the scriptures say? The scriptures said, do not neglect gathering together. Do not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. We must obey God rather than men. We've got to figure out as a church how we continue meeting, regardless of the pandemic. Amen. When our governing authority makes laws and says, all right, we're going we're gonna, to uh, support the right for women to abort their babies. That's a basic human right. And companies are coming together, and they, they say, if, uh, just because the federal government overturned Roe v. Wade, we, as a, as a corporation, are going to use you know, your, uh, our, our profits to fund abortion care, abortion services. The contrast to that, 
Like, like we, can't, we can't touch that stuff or else we'll be stained by it. So where are the Christians gathering together and pooling our money and giving our volunteer hours to care for the single mothers? That's the flip side. We don't talk about it. We don't say, oh, good, Roe v. Wade was overturned, or, or oh, that's terrible that those companies are you know, doing that thing. What we do shows whether we have faith. If we do the will of God, we give from our checkbook, and we give our, vo- our weekend hours, our weekend, and, and we give our time to volunteer at maybe a women's center, to take a young woman into our home and raise her like our own daughter, right? And provide for the needs of her baby. That's what Christians do. That's the culture of the New Testament. If we do that, and if we earnestly pray from heaven, he will heal our land. The disciples and acts are examples of what Christians are like. Does my life and does my faith look like the disciples and acts? When we seek the Lord for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit moves powerfully among us, he comes, and it is worth the wait. And when we face the persecution that is part of the Spirit-filled life, God will at that time give the grace to endure it. We need not fear. What is more? He will give us a heavenly reward when we have fought the good fight and finished the race and kept the faith. And surprisingly, or not surprisingly, like the apostles, when we are persecuted, Jesus foretells the joy that we will have. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed. That can also be translated, oh, how happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh, I want the kingdom of heaven to be mine. Blessed, oh, how happy are you when others revile you and persecute you. Do you remember middle school? Whatever time of your life that was, or maybe you had a verbally abusive parent, right? Probably more people do than don't. That was miserable. But this is something better. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. If we pray for this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, if our fear of God and our faith and our obedience to him grows, we will see it. It will look like acts. And there will be persecution and we don't have to worry. Jesus says, it's his first sermon. And he tells us this is going to come. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I'm going to add, for so they persecuted the apostles who were before you. Build your faith, your life on the foundation of these apostles. Let your faith be like that of the early Christians. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are simple people, and we are in need. And you are the great physician who heals the sick, and you are the shepherd of the sheep. 
You are the healer and overseer of our souls. We are asking you to do that which we may not have anticipated or may have forgotten to hope for. Pour out your Holy Spirit for hope. We pray that the fear of God would spread among us. And with that, Lord, we pray that you would have mercy on us and not strike any of us down. We pray that if one here is a false Christian like Ananias and Sapphira, those, I guess, nice churchgoers who came and brought an offering, we pray that you would have mercy before it's done and that you would cause the repentance that we need for life. O oh Lord, do that which you have promised and given us as a pattern. For if you don't do it, like Moses said, if you don't go with us, we cannot go up. We cannot enter the land.